Hello, everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette, Jessica Fletcher's favorite Murder, She Wrote podcast. I'm your co-host, Bridget Keyes. And I'm TJ West. And we are talking today about Season 3, Episode 3, Unfinished Business. Teej, give us a summary. All right. Well, in this episode, we get to get uh, a little bit of insight into Seth's background, because it turns out that he was part of a very shady property deal at some point, and one of the, the lawyers investigating it ended up dead in a lake, and now a retired policeman is on his way there to figure out who did it, because he suspects something is wrong, but on the way, someone else ends up murdered. And so Jessica has to, you know, basically pull Seth's butt out of the fire, as it were, so... <laughs> And it's kind of fun because we get to get like this isolated camp. So it's always fun. So it gets kind of like the best of both worlds, uh, uh, getting out of Cabot Cove, but it still has the feel of a Cabot Cove episode. I mean, pretty much this is bus stop at a lake resort. Yes, I think that's a very apt way of putting it. All these people are holed up somewhere together. Mm -hmm. They even like sit around at tables in the cabin the way they do in the episode bus stop. Right. And she, Jessica, even at one point says, can't we all just gather together and talk this out? Oh, I love, I actually, I actually like cheered out loud when we got to that moment. I was like, I love when we gather everyone into the same room to talk about it. I was like, I love a good drawing room reveal. Like that is just the, it is the, it's it's tremendously satisfying. part of a cozy mystery. Yes. And as the success of things like Knives Out reveal, it's something that a lot of people really still like, so. And I really liked that we got to know more about Seth here Mm because we have always had this question since his first appearance in season two, episode two. Um, like where we opened and you and I talked about how immediately we felt this like deep connection between him and Jessica and that as if they had been friends forever. And here we learned that at least 10 years ago anyway, Seth lived in Portland uh, and he had a wife, Ruth, who died. Uh, he was living there trying to pay off her medical bills. That's why he got involved in this property deal, try to make some money. Um, so it, it raises questions about like how long he and Jessica have actually been friends. Why did he come to Cabot Cove? Like, was he in Cabot Cove and then he left? And so they have known each other a long time or this is my head canon teach. Okay. I think maybe season two, episode two, like that first time we see them together, they've actually only just become friends. Like he's just arrived in Cabot Cove and that's why we never saw him in season one, but they just, they sparked so much that they were just like instantly besties what do you think i mean i personally like that because that very closely mirrors our own friendship i know know, right when when we made when i made a sausage joke and knew that we were gonna and you laughed and i knew we were gonna be friends immediately so you made a sausage joke and then you looked at everyone and you were like i mean we've known each other long enough right and i I literally just met you 30 seconds before and i was like yep we've known each other long enough and that was it we were like best friends ever since so I I prefer that headcanon as well. I think that is a much more satis- satisfying relationship than if they had known each other previously. That would also explain, like, what happened to Ethan, too, right? Like, like she used to be friends with Ethan. Some new guy comes to town, and she's, like, totally in love with him, and she doesn't see Ethan as much anymore. It would also explain why Amos is always, like... um like jealous and weird because uh-huh. Amos has known her for forever. Right. And all of a sudden some newfangled fancy doctor man comes to town and she's too busy to hang out with Amos. Right. You know? It explains a lot of things. It really does. It, it is one of the most, it, you know, it ties everything up in a nice little neat narrative bow. And I really think that's quite satisfying. <laughs> but I mean, also I do think that it, it adds, I mean, aside from that satisfaction, I think that this episode also 
like it really gives us an insight into Seth's like psychology and his emotions that we don't always get because of course you know part of the appeal of Seth is he's this cranky old man like that's just his thing but we you know beneath that crusty crunchy New England facade there is you know a genuine warmth and I think that we get that you know with the indication that he was Mm -hmm. grieving over his wife you know the struggle to pay medical bills which you know is a storyline that has a lot of rest his beard yeah, right. His, his, his medical bills, a storyline that still has a lot of resonance in 2023, sadly enough. Yeah, right. The idea that he, I mean, even him, a doctor. Right, exactly. So we think of him as someone who would typically be kind of affluent. And he's like, no, my wife's medical bills like put me in the poorhouse. It's a very American story. It is, isn't it? So, I mean, I think that all of that really, and delivered in just a few lines of dialogue, that's the miracle of this, that you would get all this in maybe, what, like a minute, two minutes in the intro, and then we move on, but it just, it does so much work to help us really understand Seth's background. The other thing I liked about this was, um, so he lies to Jessica and says he's not, you know, he he gets this newspaper clipping that says the retired detective's going to go investigate the cold case, and so, of course, all the players are descending back on the lake resort. Um, he lies to Jessica and he's like, I'm not going there. And then, of course, he goes there. And, of course, she knows he goes there. Um, mm-hmm. But when she goes to check on him, they can't find him all night. And he appears in the morning uh, actually arrested by the sheriff who found him wandering the street. And so Seth spends the rest of the episode, like, totally dirty and tired. He's been up all night. He hasn't changed his clothes. Um, and what I really liked was how that told me – I think that that told me something about who he is, too – like, he said that his car went into a ditch and he was trying to walk back and the sheriff saw him. But since someone had been murdered, the sheriff thought it was suspicious. Someone was walking the street. So that's why the sheriff took him in. But there's just something about, like, I don't know, like, he's going to protect Jessica by telling her he's not going to go there. And then just the sort of hardiness of him that he's, like, up all night, walking for miles, trying mm-hmm. to just figure stuff out on his own. Like, there's something very, I don't know, hardy about that that made me... Like, he's not a delicate man, I guess. And there's nothing wrong with being a delicate man. I don't know where I'm going with this. No, I mean, as you know, as someone who is n- who is not unfamiliar with country roads on which you can indeed break an axle <laughs> being from West Virginia, where where such things are the norm rather than the exception. Well, now I've got like John Denver stuck in my head. So thank you. Well, you're welcome. West Virginia country roads. Yes, exactly. They're not nearly as idyllic as they are painted in John Denver's <laughs> song. But, you know, I think that you're right that that, you know, there is a certain huskiness to Seth that I think goes underappreciated, except in this episode. What's also striking is when we first see him in the custody of the sheriff, the camera dramatically zooms mm-hmm. in on the, the handcuffs. It's like, hey, yes. the TV audience, look, he's in handcuffs. That's in handcuffs. Isn't that <laughs> shocking? Seth's <laughs> yeah. in handcuffs. And then that moment where Jessica is, um, he's like, what are you doing here? And she was like, well, when I thought you were missing, like, I, I was worried. I had to come check on you. And he's like, I am perfectly capable of taking care of myself. And she's like, uh-huh, I can see that, <laughs> right? Like, just yeah. totally teasing him. Like, yeah, you've been arrested and you've been wandering the streets all night in the dark. Like, yeah, you're really doing a good job taking care of yourself. Clearly, you need me. I mean, that is an exchange that you and I might have. Well, either way, either one of us could fill it totally. to either slot. <laughs> so I'll remember this. We can remember this when one of us is arrested and the other goes looking for, for the other one. So we gather everyone around in the main cabin for the big reveal. And 
a lot of this episode, it occurs to me, Tej, it's kind of like a play because mm-hmm. mostly it's just people sitting around talking for 45 yep. minutes. There's very little action in this. Mm-hmm. And yet somehow I still found it really gripping because it's all about these lies and secrets, right? So we find out that when the resort was being opened, Seth was one of the investors along with these other people. As you said, the, there's an attorney uh, investigating them because he thinks that this property deal might have to do with fraud or something shady. But he ends up dead. So now they look like murder suspects. And there's a cop who is investigating it, can't solve it, retiring. At his retirement announces, I'm going to solve that one last case. And then, of course, it turns out he was the one who killed the attorney in the first place because the attorney knew he was a dirty cop. This is wild. Mm-hmm. It also doesn't make sense to me because why didn't the police officer, if the police officer was dirty and he's the one who committed murder, like, why wouldn't he just take the retirement? They gave him a trip around the world, like, go on the trip around the world and no one will ever know you're a murderer. But yeah, why would you say you're going to go investigate a murder that you did and then suddenly they find out you did it? Right. It's kind of weird. Yeah. But it was really gripping. It was very, it was very gripping. Yes, it was one of those ones where I was just kind of, I, I. I left feeling satisfied, but also perplexed, which I often do some with Murder, She Wrote, it seems. Because I, I, too, was just like, uh, wait, he, he killed someone because why? Like, I was like, what? Like, he just yeah. shot this random person just to kind of like... Okay, we didn't even talk about that. So he, like, he killed... He's responsible for the cold case. Right. But then while we're all at the resort in this one crazy night, he shoots a guy who's just stopped there for the night uh, to make everyone think someone was trying to kill him because the guy was in his cabin. But actually, he deliberately shot that guy because that guy was prison cellmates with someone named Joe Cabrini, which is just hilarious because on Murder, She Wrote, the bad guys are always Italian. <laughs> Remember that one time they, like, Italianized somebody's name in the stupidest way possible? Yes. Do you remember that? (laughs) Anyway, um, and so Joe Cabrini had been at the resort and knew – I don't really get it. He knew that the cop was the murderer or something. Yeah, that's how. And then he told his cellmate. So that's why the detective shot the cellmate but made it look like someone was after him. As if he was getting close to solving the cold case. It's all very complicated. Yeah, but not complicated in a way that pays off particularly, like, compellingly. Oh. Well, okay. no, I mean, I, let me, I, narratively, let me put it that way. Like, narratively, it doesn't yeah. pay off. But I agree with you that I feel satisfied just because the performances are so extraordinary. And the, yeah. the, the drama and the tension and, like, the, the like, as you say, the play-like atmosphere, I think, contributes a lot. Like, there's yeah. something just inherently... And then we're in this, like, cloistered environment. We're at some lake resort removed from everything else out in the woods. And it's just, like, these people, you know, Jessica the sheriff, Seth, and, like... The guy who runs the resort and then the other three investors, like just them and the detective. I mean, it's like really tight knit, you know, like perfect cozy mystery setup. Right. It's like, you know, as we've talked about, like with Agatha Christie, for example, like it doesn't always have to make sense to be satisfying, like because it's just something inherently just satisfying. That's the only word I can think of to describe it. It's just nice to see people competently acting and having these mystery escapades. Like there's just something fun about that, I guess. I want to keep talking about our bad guy, too, because I, I, this is part of what I think makes the episode so good is that he – so he sets it up to look like someone's trying to murder him. Then he's found the next morning unconscious and, like, with a head wound, and he says somebody cut the rung on a ladder. So, again, he's, like, planting all this evidence to make it seem like someone's after him. And then later he plants 
someone's phone number in the cabin so that when they're searching the cabin, you know, with the, the forensics guys are searching the cabin, they find it and think it's a piece of evidence, but actually he planted it to like implicate someone else. I mean, it's like, I just, it's really quite diabolical, like all the things this guy does. And most importantly, he poisons himself with arsenic. Oh, I forgot that one. Yeah. Yeah. He even poisons himself. This is so great. Shooting, I mean, stabbing, whatever, falling down, poisoning. I mean, that's a huge risk to take. To, <laughs> you're, you have to be awfully competent in your your poison measuring abilities to know that you're going to like give Do yourself you? just enough to make you sick. Do you really? Because um, like like golden age detective fiction has led me to believe that a very <laughs> it's very simple. You just a little tiny bit of arsenic, and then everyone will think someone's trying to murder you. Or then you, you know, you give yourself a little tiny bit and then you give someone else a lot and then it's hard to tell who, oh, who was guilty. Right. We all got poisoned. It makes it seem like it's so easy to do. I mean, we could try it out, but I'm not sure I would recommend it. No, no, thank you. (laughs) My point exactly. It's just like, wow, I mean, you're really taking a risk with your own physical well-being to be like, you know what? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give myself a dose of a deadly poison to try to distract everyone and convince them that my life is at risk. I don't remember this episode as well as some of the others. Like, I've obviously seen it multiple times, but I haven't seen it nine billion times like some of the others. So I was actually trying to solve along. Uh, and when it got to the point where he poisoned, he falls down, like, unconscious from the poison, I was like, oh, that guy's he did it. Mm-hmm. He, he totally did. He's the one for sure. And then at one point, all the evidence is pointing to Seth. And um, God bless her. Jessica Fletcher says... What did she say? I want to get it right. There's no power on earth that would ever make me believe Seth is a killer. I know. That's fl- that's loyalty right there. Isn't that sweet? If all the evidence ever pointed Spirits. to me, would you say something like that? Or would you just be like, yeah, TJ totally did it. I can definitely see him doing it. No, I'm way too cynical. <laughs> I would be like, I don't know if I can trust this guy. Yep, that, that definitely tracks. That's, that is definitely something that I would expect you to say. Because you don't want to be like some gullible dupe, you know, like... Whereas I, I, on the other hand, would say, I could never imagine Bridget killing anyone. She's too much of a well, do-gooder. Yeah, I wouldn't. You would never have reason to suspect me. No way. I mean, you take the high road so often you get nosebleeds, so, you know. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> anyway, um, I really like Jessica's relationship with this bumpkin sheriff, too. Since yes. it's out of Amos's jurisdiction, we have this other guy who, like, he arrests Seth. Come on. And then he's just... He's holding them all there, and Jessica's like, you can't, like, legally force us all to stay here. Especially, and this is what I, you know, like, bus stop. It's like, there, someone has murdered someone. There is a murderer amongst this small group of people, and they're all being forced to stay there. Like, that is terrifying. And then she, when she threatens to call the governor, which in itself is fascinating, it's a suggestion <laughs> of just how much power now, you know, Jessica J.B. Fletcher wields in, you know, main politics. Right? Like, don't mess with me, bumpkin sheriff. I'm connected to the governor. Right. I mean, well, she did serve in the house for a while. So, you know, I I mean, it's not as if she's, you know, aside from her literary celebrity, she is a woman. She could probably call the president at this point, don't you think? Yeah. I'm 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 sure she's been invited to the White House by now. Right. She's famous enough. I mean, she's like the Stephen King of... Fictional Maine. Well, but this is the Reagan era. I don't know. Did the Reagans like murder mystery novelists? I mean, they seem like the type. I mean, they're pretty. They were pretty basic, <laughs> so I'm guessing they probably did. She may. I think her invitation's not going to come until '88. Probably, yeah. It's going to be. It's going to be Bush Senior. Yeah. He he'll like her books and invite. Yeah, her, she think. would definitely get along with the Bushes. 
There's a sort of noblesse yes. oblige that they would that would be simpatico, <laughs> I think, with those two. Anyway, but she's you know she's not afraid to bring down the hammer of you know. She calls him Genghis Khan at one point. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a hilariously random person to to evoke. (laughs) It's like, there's not even like remotely a comparison between the sheriff and Genghis Khan. But I love the way she gets so sassy and tells people off. Like, she's just so great. I know there's a certain like way that Lansbury has to deliver these lines. Like you could almost just see like when people describe sparks coming from people's eyes, this is what I I envision. Cause like you could just, she has such a command of her face and of her eyes in particular, that is just quite extraordinary. That's extraordinary to watch. Like to see, as you say, to, to capture this, this spitfire of JB that we don't always see. Like, you know, normally JB is so, she has an equanimity, but she also is not afraid to, you know, let loose when she has to, especially when it's one of her friends that's being put in danger. Um, well, she's never, I mean, we always talk about this, that she's never a milksop. She always, she's always very gracious, but when people well, sure. bother her, she tells them. And especially if it's like law enforcement doing yeah. something stupid. And I really appreciate that about her. Um, but she really, this this episode, she's just like, no. You are Genghis Khan. <laughs> and I do appreciate that the sheriff, while obviously their relationship is antagonistic, it's not as, it's not belligerent necessarily. Like, and it's not full of, it doesn't have that kind of, like, meanness to it. That's something, like, I think the two develop a kind of grudging respect for each other that I, I like. Yeah, I think sometimes where the show gets weird is when um, it's supposed to be an antagonistic episode. And it's really hard, I think, for those characters to sustain it without just seeing like weirdly mean. Yeah. I mean, sorry, this is one of those times when I think it works because it develops as the episode goes on. Exactly. Yeah. And it, and it helps that she has Amos that she can call and be like, Okay, I need you to do some real work here because this guy's not going to do any <laughs> investigative work. So can you can you check this stuff out for me? Right. So speaking of needlessly mean, I just want to make a brief like non sequitur about the like murder victim and how he is such an asshole. Like when he first comes into the hotel, like and it keeps calling the owner like Gramps and Pops yeah. and blah, blah. And I love how Murder She Wrote depicts this certain kind of like bratty, entitled '80s man. Like we see it repeatedly. In this show, and I kind of, I low-key love it, the way that, you know, these usually, you know, 20, 30-something guys are always just absolutely, unequivocally obnoxious. That's true. On Murder, She Wrote, they usually are, yeah. You know, because they've got the 80s frizzy hair, and they they just, they walk with that. like, sort of 80s um, Reagan-era entitlement of, Right, but they're so, they're so obviously ridiculous. Like, that's what I love, is that they're. I mean, we aren't invited to take them seriously because they clearly because they take themselves very seriously, but we're not invited to do that. I just felt really bad for his wife because he yes. like randomly tells her they're going here, and she's like, I, "Why are we here? I have no idea." Um, the whole time they're checking in, it's really weird. So you you almost think that, like they're not actually married at first or something because it's all like it's just really weird and awkward, and she's no idea what's going on, and they just. It doesn't sound like they're there, honestly. And um, and then her husband turns up dead and she's stuck, you mm-hmm. know, and people are, I mean, I don't know. I, and Murder, She Wrote never gives people enough space for grief. Yeah. Um, and so I'm just like, this poor woman's husband has just been murdered. And like, we're, she doesn't even understand, like, why he went there. He's told her they were going fishing. She doesn't give a shit about fishing. He doesn't even bring it around. And there's no fishing equipment. <laughs> and he's wearing a suit. Like, what the hell is even happening? This poor woman. Yeah. 
It does ha- not to yeah. feel sorry for her. Yeah. And then it turns out he was like, he'd only stopped there to blackmail the detective because he kept telling her they were going to come into some money soon. So he was obviously lying to her. It was obviously a bad marriage. It's like, this poor girl, you know, she got a bum deal. Collateral damage. Basically, yeah. I mean, because we don't even know what's going to happen to her at the end. We don't get a scene of everything being fixed and being right at the end. Right. You know, her ex-con boyfriend is dead, you know. And what we get at the end is, you know, actually our detective is like a psychopath. <laughs> I mean. That's true. We start, I mean, it's like, it starts with like, he planted the evidence. Then it's like, he poisoned himself. Then it's like, and he shot the guy. And also he did the cold case. And then he starts like telling us why he did the cold case. And it's like, it's horrible. He's like, yeah, that guy was religious. And he always talked about getting into heaven. And I got him there faster. And that's the last line. Psychopath. Right. It reminds me. And, you know, listeners to this podcast know I fixate on the, you know, lovers and other killers episode way back. Mm-hmm. But this is another of those unsettling moments that ends with a killer just kind of like relishing their victory. And that's the freeze frame, right? So we never get that like sense of like justice being yep. restored. We just get this like, and then it makes you think, Teach, because we're told at the beginning it's his retirement party. We're told he's a lifelong police officer. What else has this guy done that nobody's caught? Yep, it's a scathing indictment of, you know, the way that supposedly bad apples can get systemically insinuated in such a way that they can't be extracted until they obviously are caught doing another murder and and then, you know, confess over a cup of tea. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily think about it, except, like, I would just think, like, this was just one situation, but we're told that he was a dirty cop and that's why he killed the attorney in the first place. And because the episode doesn't give us the next day, you know, everybody's checking out of the resort, Jess puts her arm around the newly the new widow and it's all gonna be better. Like because we never get that. We just get this guy being unhinged. It leaves me as a viewer thinking, like, oh my God, what else has he done? What else has he done that nobody's discovered yet? Right, which is emphasized by the opening, which takes such la- like belabors the point of just how celebrated he is as a cop. Mm-hmm. Like that there's the, it's at least what two three minutes of just constant like it's you know lavishing of attention and affection and mm-hmm. praise on this guy yeah which of course has its ironic counterpoint because the last frame is the revel- revelation of his corruption and his lack of repentance which again makes the in one way makes the murder make no sense because he was so beloved he was given gold watches to retire and then he came back and he was given then a trip around the world. Why on earth would you forfeit all of that to come to some weird ass cabin in the middle of nowhere and lose everything? Like, take the money and run. Like, why did this? Why would this guy? It doesn't make any sense. Or, or at least, like, if he needs to go kill some people to settle this case, like, don't announce it. I don't know. It's just like, what was he thinking? Hubris, my dear. Hubris. Well, maybe. I suppose narratively, hubris would explain it. Otherwise, it's awkward writing. (laughs) Well, I can't believe we've gone this far, and we still haven't talked about the thing we always gush about, which, of course, are the guest stars, which, you know, it's quite a roster this time, I have to say. You know, sometimes I'm unimpressed, but this time I was like, ooh, when I saw the names of the guest stars, I was quite excited. I know. We have Haley Mills. Oh, I love, I can't, I have an, a, a tremendous affection for Haley Mills. Like, I just find her so effortlessly 
charming. Me and I too. thought that I've I've loved her. I mean, I liked her in the parent trap, but I loved her even more as like she didn't do much much acting as an adult, but like I still find her there's just a sort of radiant British something about her like it's just i she i was thinking in this episode she reminds me of olivia newton john and i know that mm, that's australian but there's a, like that. a softness to their voices but and and also just like a beauty and i don't know how to explain it but i really was getting olivia newton john vibes to put it as gene kelly does in singing in the rain dignity always dignity like that's what i get from Haley mills like there's just an inherent dignity to her performance which, of course, you know, <laughs> our listeners may not realize, but she was actually in the first season of Saved by the Bell when it was called a show called Good Morning, Miss Bliss. I was going to ask if you knew that or if Saved by the Bell was too early for you because you're a little bit younger than me. Well, it is. I only watched it as when I was in grad school. And I have to say I much prefer Good Morning, Miss Bliss to Saved by the Bell. And I think that it lost something when it <laughs> ditched Haley Mills. But that's because I just love Haley Mills. And I think she's wonderful and should be kept in everything. I loved The Parent. Like, The Parent Trap was one of those movies that I had on VHS that I um, mm-hmm. I could say forwards and backwards, like, knew every line of dialogue, you know? For those of us who are Golden Girls fans, and of course, who among us is not a Golden Girls fan? There's also Lloyd Bachner, very famous for playing the incandescent Mr. Patrick Vaughn, and also Eduardo, the hairdresser, <laughs> who plays in this episode a doctor who's, you know, implicated in this whole land deal. I will always love Lloyd Bachner. I think he also is another character who just has a kind of His grace voice. to him that I just relish. Oh, yes. It's like, oh, it's, just... it's like I don't know, like very smooth whiskey going down or something. It's like melted chocolate. It's it's almost reminiscent of Robert Stack, I think. Yes, I would say that's accurate. It's like, it's just, it's such a great voice. It's a classically, it's not, I mean, I don't know that he actually was classically trained, but it seems like a classically trained voice. Like, there's a control there that I think is, is what you're gesturing toward, at least in part. Yes. He doesn't actually do much in this episode. In fact, like, we never even right. mentioned him in our summary, because, like, he's really, I mean, he's there to be a red herring suspect, but he really doesn't do much. Uh, but I thought it was interesting that you jumped from Haley Mills to him, because we also have Aaron Moran better known as Joni from the Happy Days and Joni Loves Chachi. Um, That's true. She's our young widow in this episode. Oh, yes, you are absolutely right. It, I wasn't putting the pieces together until you until you just said that, which is shameful that I didn't quite realize that. I, I knew she looked familiar and I just the pieces didn't fall into place until just now. Did you? Maybe you didn't watch that growing up. I always watched Happy Days and reruns growing up. I, I watched Happy Days and reruns. It just put it together who it was but now that you say that it's like mm. oh it's like a beam of light if you could see me listeners like there's a beam of light i'm like uh, i know it's like yes, one of those, exactly. like where do i know her from i have that a lot with murder she wrote that's why imdb is so helpful ah uh, i was like i'm embarrassed that i didn't know that. um i think she she's super cute i really like her and i think you know obviously this is like 1986 uh it would have been so exciting probably mm-hmm. for audiences to see her don't you think oh absolutely she would have been so familiar mm-hmm. And of course, you know, the the, detect- the crooked detective is Pat Hingle, and, you know, who was kind of ubiquitous in so much. For 80s kids, they may not know his face necessarily, but they certainly recognize his voice from The Land Before Time, because he plays both the narrator and the character of oh. Old Rooter, who's the dinosaur who comforts Littlefoot the, mother- the day after his mother dies. I didn't know that. Yep. So that's, I, I've long had an affection for, who's, for his voice, similarly, because it's a very comforting and, like, grandfatherly kind of voice which is why it's so interesting to see him play this you know horrible person given that this is very shortly before land before time 
Yeah. So what we have then, Teej, we have him, we have Lloyd Bachner, we have J.D. Cannon playing the sheriff, and we have Don DeFore playing the resort owner, Jake, who's like kind of like unshaven, you know, like grizzled guy you'd expect mm-hmm. to be running a cabin in the woods. Uh, and then, of course, we have Seth, right. who is super scruffy in this episode because it all takes place in the space of like one night and he's been up all night. So uh, I think that we just have like like a bevy of crusty old men in this episode. So I thought it might be fun if we played crusty old man trivia. Are you game? Of course. Excellent. Okay. So um, what I'm going to do is that scared my doggy. <laughs> Sorry. Excellent. Okay. So what I'm going to do is read off a trivia question. And then you have to tell me which of the guest stars it was. Or if you can't remember their name, then you just tell me the character. Okay. Are you ready? Yep. You'll already know the answer to the first one because you actually already said it. Um, Which of these crusty old men once inspired Blanche Devereaux to wear an inflatable bra to catch his attention in The Golden Girls? Lloyd Wachner, obviously. Which of the crusty old men is reuniting on screen with William Wyndham after last appearing together in Funeral at 50 Mile, our season one finale? Oh, uh, is it the hotel owner? You're really good at the crusty old man trivia. Okay, which of these crusty old men will go on to shine a bat signal over Gotham City? Hmm, is it Pat Hingle? Yes! From from 1989, Tim Burton Batman. He's Commissioner Gordon. Okay, which of these crusty old men was once way less crusty when dealing with a maid who pretty much ran his household? Is it Seth? I don't have a, like, eh sound. Try again. Uh, Lloyd Bachner? I don't know. No, it's Don DeFore, the resort owner, Jake. He was the husband and dad, uh, Mr. B, in Hazel, the old sitcom Hazel. Got it. Okay. Okay, last one. Which of these crusty old men was a contestant on Super Password five times in the 80s? Hmm. Bachner? I mean, he seems like the type who would be on Password, though, right? No. Uh, Hingle? Okay, I'll give you a hint. There's five crusty old men, so there's one question per crusty old man. So oh. who haven't you named yet? Uh, who's the other? Cr- I don't know. Who is it? <laughs> I lost track of who I mentioned. <laughs> William Wyndham. You're right. So that's it. Uh, you did four out of five, so you were a winner in crusty old man trivia. Well oh, done, well. Teach. And here I thought I was only good at crusty old lady trivia, but I guess, you know. <laughs> Hey, these old ladies aren't crusty. They're sassy. That's true. That's true. I was, sorry, pardon me. I thought I was a sassy old lady expert, but apparently I'm, <laughs> I, I'm ambidextrous. Well, that's going to do it for another episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette. We'll catch you next week. But until then, I'm Bridget Keys, And I'm TJ West. Thanks for listening. Our theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nakarada, used under Creative Commons license. You can find us on social media. We are the Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter. 